You're listening to Adamant Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR. My name is Marco, and I will be your host for the next half hour. On today's show, we're exploring stories on girlhood and empowerment, including a special edition of Radio Eve with Sky and Amy Van Keeken coming up later in the show. But first, let's take a listen to a chat I had with Dr. Shanila Kojamulji. Dr. Kojamulji is a postdoctoral fellow studying democracy, citizenship, and constitutionalism in the Department of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. I sat down with Dr. Kojamulji to talk about transnational feminism, girl power movements, and how to acknowledge all the different ways of being a girl in our global society. Here's what she had to say. My name is Shanila Kojomuzi, and I'm a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Pennsylvania's program on democracy, citizenship, and constitutionalism. I actually problematize the centering of girls' education and empowerment as a solution to societal problems um, with a special focus on Muslim-majority nations. I try to interrogate um, universalistic notions of girlhood, um, empowerment, human rights that are often um, embedded in some of these calls for women and girls' education. I started off um, looking at campaigns um, in the present in terms of development campaigns, um, but my book project actually traces um, the emergence of women's reforms and women's education from the colonial period, so 1857 colonial India to the present. Um, And I'm trying to figure out the ways in which the figure of the woman, um, the figure of the girl, and the enterprise of education has actually um, emerged as a site for a range of social reformers, be they um, British colonial officers um, or development advocates today, be they Muslim or non-Muslim, to to explore uh, imagined futures and to to discuss um, some of the ways in which um, we can reform society um, in and through the figure of the woman, the girl, and education. And so that's my broader project. I was directed to your work because of an article you wrote called Girls of the Global South Can't Fix the World Alone. Yes. And um, I was really excited to talk to you about that um, because in that article you also talk about um, different constructs of girlhood as well. But I think a good place to start is uh, could you explain what the term Global South is? I'd never actually encountered it before, and I think it's really interesting. So um, in the field of development studies, um, we've used um, a broad range of concepts to point to economic disparities, concentrations of wealth, manufacturing globally. And so you may have come across terms such as developed, underdeveloped, first, third world, um, and most recently we've been using global south um, and global north. What is important to uh, note, and uh, post-colonial scholars such as Chandra Mohanty have already pointed this out, um, is that we have to think about these terms in, uh, in fluid ways. So um, we have to think about them in terms of pointing out the differences between the haves and have-nots, regardless of the geographical location. Um, and so if we were to follow this logic, then we will find um, economically marginalized populations in the global north, so say in Canada and the U.S., and we will find economic elites in the global south, such as in Pakistan. And so the task for, uh, for us then becomes to focus on the quality of life of people, regardless of their physical location. And that's one of the reasons why um, I've taken up this term in my work, um, to point to, to track some of the ways in which 
transnational flows of capital, ideas. Um, they travel transnationally, and we can find marginalized populations across the world. As you know, I um, work on Pakistan, and much of my research uh, is in relation to Pakistan. And so I also want to keep um, taught this notion of physical locations, and, and not to say that it has lost this explanatory power. So in Pakistan, for example, it's impossible really um, to not be aware of histories of exploitation and domination um, that were experienced by previous generations under the colonial rule. Our institutions, our infrastructure, our social landscapes all reflect these histories. So the term Global South then um, enables me to attend to these histories of classic colonialism, but um, also add on to the ways and think about the ways in which colonialism has in some ways transmuted and remorphed into um, relations of capitalist exploitation and domination. And so um, it's important then to keep both of these costs taught in this term. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that, because when I first um, was reading about Global North and Global South, my initial thought was, mm-hmm. like, oh, doesn't it kind of like obscure the fact that, like you said, there are economic disparities in the North, uh, and then there are, right. there are um, and the same in the South, but, um, you know, I think that was just me, like, um, projecting onto those terms, because I'm so used to hearing, like you said, developed versus developing, or first world right. versus third right. world, so um, I'm glad you explained that, but are there any sort of new conflicts or tensions that you think uh, arise from sp- sort of splitting the world into North and South? In the, in the contemporary moment, I think it's important to attend to transnational flows. I think we now live in a globalized moment where ideas, people, capital, um, we, we move around. I think if you were to look at um, the economic elites in Pakistan um, and compare them to economic elites in Dubai, to London, to the U.S., you are not going to find much differences, right? So, so I think from that perspective, while these terms have importance, I think they have to be grounded in and analyzed um, across in terms of looking at transnational flows as well. And I think that would address then your concern around, um, around the limitations of actually dividing the world into these strict solidified categories, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's never going to be the, the perfect term, I don't think, either. Um, right. So now I want to get into the topic of, of girlhood. Um, I was really intrigued by that as well because I feel like very often people talk about womanhood, but I've never heard like a, a feminist deconstruction of girlhood. Maybe that's just I don't read enough. I was wondering, could you explain how, how you think that the lives of girls are symbolized and politicized in the world? So um, I'll begin by saying that um, gender is socially constructed, right? So um, womanhood, ideas around womanhood, girlhood, um, all of these articulations um, are are decided socially, and that also means that their content changes with time and space. And so, like you mentioned, there was a moment in the 1970s uh, and 80s when the the focus of the development regime was, in fact, on women and women's empowerment and microcredit and microfinance, if you remember. Most recently, the figure of the girl um, has emerged as the ideal site for reform, and it is the girl, her empowerment, her education that promises to inaugurate us into a prosperous future. In my work, um, I, I argue that this current focus on 
growth education and empowerment, especially in the transnational development regime, it draws on particular conceptualizations of girlhood. So this girl is marked by individualism, entrepreneurship, consumerism, delayed marriage, motherhood, uh, and delayed motherhood. Um, she participates in waged labor and in doing so contributes to national GDP. Um, she has positive public expressions in relation to sexuality, etc. And so... These are all elements that you might recognize as being part of the girl power ideology that circulates in the West. So to be this empowered girl is to enact all of these elements. This enactment of girlhood is just one way of being a girl. We can imagine um, various other performances of girlhood um, where girls prioritize the well-being of their faith communities or families or where they might value solidarity over individualism. We can imagine girls who um, draw on religious beliefs to inform their everyday actions. But um, those girls then appear um, in, in contrast to this particular dominant idea of girlhood, they are then marked as oppressed. Mm. Um, I, I don't know if you've been following the news, but recently in France, uh, there's been a ban on burkini um, where yes. uh, covering up one's body, right, is yes. kind of automatically read as regressive. Mm-hmm. And so... In addition to those articulations, there are also girls who, due to systemic um, racism and poverty, they're actually not able to approach or enact the girlhood that is most um, dominant and valorized. And so in the context of the U.S., um, there's a girlhood study scholar. Um, her name is Anita Harris. Um, she, she notes that such girls then come to be marked as accurate. And so what's happening is that um, I'm arguing that we need to expand our conceptualizations of what successful modern girlhood means. Uh, but at the same time, we also actually have to explore the different social economic realities of girls, which make them, um, which make it difficult for some girls to access the privileges that this, this dominant script of girlhood um, embodies. There are, there are, um, there are particular uh, white middle-class assumptions of individualism, of priority of the self that are embedded in this conceptualization, which are really difficult for people to enact unless you're coming from particular socioeconomic positions. Um, so do you think sure. that, um, sort of, I guess, the reductiveness of these girl power movements comes from denying vulnerability? Because you talk about, like, how in your article about how, like, um, girls in the global south are expected to fix the, the problems in their societies when, um, you know, that's there's all the, there's these systems mm-hmm. of oppression that are so much larger than them as individuals. Do you think it comes from um, not acknowledging mm-hmm. that they are vulnerable and they are still children in this this system? So the figure of the girl as um, uh, as a vulnerable figure, but also holding promise, right? So mm-hmm. I, I do think that some of the uh, systemic um, uh, issues, such as poverty, such as economic growth, um, such as corruption. Um, all of these are really difficult issues to address, right? But at the same time, I believe that these are feminist issues. I think if we are really concerned about the welfare of women and girls in Pakistan, for example, then we really cannot turn a blind eye to the fact that the Prime Minister of the Pakistan and his family have been named in the recent Panama leaks. Uh, the Prime Minister has actually not even come out and responded to the nation in terms of how did he make this money? How did he take the money out um, of the country? And so I think the rampant corruption in Pakistan, although it's a very difficult issue, is a feminist issue. 
And so um, sometimes I feel that that focusing on um, the girl is a very effective way to rally support, right? Who is not going to be for girls' empowerment? Who doesn't want girls to get good education? And all of us, of course, do want that. But I think we have to place the girls within these broader structures and understand that to actually enact feminist movements, we have to, in addition to focusing on the girls, also focus on some of the societies of girls. And corruption is just one of them. But I think it becomes harder. Maybe that's why um, that's why it's easier to just focus on the particular symptoms. And then, and then long-term development, I feel, requires long-term commitment, engaging in multiple levels, which, which, may, which is harder. But that's the kind of work that we all have to do. What does empowerment mean to you personally? I look at empowerment as um, being experienced in multiple ways um, across multiple systems. So I think one um, understanding of empowerment that we um, that we normally have is in terms of the ways in which an individual can make uh, choices um, for themselves um, to enact a kind of good life that they they envision for themselves, right? And so to be able to make decisions, to be able to direct one's lives in particular ways. And that's an important way to, for us to think about empowerment in terms of valorizing the individual to thinking about the self. But I think there's also another way um, to think about, about empowerment. And I think one of the ways in which I've tried to make sense of it is that um, when you and I think of ourselves, we think of ourselves as individuals, but we also think of ourselves as belonging to different collectivities and communities, right? So we're not the self-interested individual who always does work for his or her um, advancement of self, right? We sacrifice time, we sacrifice money. You are volunteering at a feminist radio. I volunteer for my Shia Muslim community. So we have social justice issues and communities that we care for. And I think we can think about empowerment as experienced in relation to those communities as well. We have to feel empowered within these relationships, mm. too. Yeah, I like that, because I was also wondering if you thought that solidarity and individualism can kind of coexist, because as I was reading your right. article, it kind of sounds exactly. like they're they're almost, they are in conflict, I mean, and by definition, but I do think there, there are ways that we embody both concepts in our lives, and that doesn't exactly. take away from our agency if we, in one aspect, devote ourselves to our community. We are, we're complex beings, and we, we do, we, of course, privileged self-interest in some cases, but we also have um, a lot invested in our communities. We sacrifice for our families, we sacrifice for our communities, we prioritize social justice issues and we work for them. And I think a part of that um, understanding that I have is um, emerges from my belief um, as a Shia Muslim. To, to be a Muslim for me is to work um, for social justice issues. And so I think um, in, in you know, thinking about social justice, we have to establish solidarity across multiple communities of those who are marginalized, right? No, I agree. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for um, chatting with me today. Thank you um, for inviting me. Welcome back to Adam and Eve on CJSR. We were just listening to an interview with Dr. Shanila Kojamulji, a postdoctoral fellow from the University of Pennsylvania, who presented us with some different ways of looking at girl power and the politics of girlhood. Next up on the show, we go over to a special edition of Radio Eve with Sky and fellow CJSR announcer, Amy Van Keeken. 
Amy just completed a new musical project with the Robin Hood Association in Sherwood Park, and so she stopped by the studio to talk to us about it. Over to Sky for all the details. My name is Amy Van Keeken. I am a, a contract arts instructor facilitator working through, well, I'm, I'm contract arts instructor facilitator at the Robin Hood Association in Sherwood Park. And what does the Robin Hood Association do? Um, they're an organization that uh, facilitates the um, lives, I guess, of individuals with developmental disabilities. So um, there are different services offered. Um, there are residences for people to live. There's a uh, learning center, which is where I teach my classes. And there's uh, adult programming, and there's also uh, early childhood programming as well. Yeah. And you're also, you work uh, at CGSR too. Uh, you have a show. That's right, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I co-host Twang and Things every Monday from 1 to 3 p.m. with my co-host Thea. And uh, I'm also a musician. So how does that um, tie into your work at the Robin Hood uh, Association? Well, especially for uh, the classes I teach, I teach uh, choir, and I teach a drama class, and I teach music and movement, which is sort of an all-encompassing class that um, includes songwriting, some uh, singing, uh, music appreciation, um, learning about uh, different genres of music, music of the world, uh, percussion, rhythm, dance. So it's kind of a, you know, it's a class where we sort of explore music in all its various forms. And uh, and as a musician, I mean, that's my life. My life is music. I'm also a private vocal instructor as well. I work out of my home studio. So um, all of those things tie together, and I'm inspired by each of those things, and all of that kind of flows and kind of all works together, which informs my radio programming and my songwriting. So it's kind of neat. All the things I do inspire each other. What is the All in Music Project? The All in Music Project is a project uh, that was spearheaded by Mark Davis and Alice Koss. Mark Davis is a musician. He has uh, worked for the Robin Hood Association, and now he's a contract arts instructor. The individuals from our classes and ourselves collaborated with established musicians from Edmonton and our emerging musicians wrote songs with them. And then last summer, we recorded all the songs and we made an album and our album release is coming up on uh, September 8th. How did uh, collaborating, like dealing with multiple contributors, how did that affect the kind of sound and style of the album? Like, And was it kind of, not diff more difficult, but different from working um, as an individual musician, did you find? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there were 14 professional musicians, um, well, professional slash established uh, musicians from Edmonton that uh, that came to our classes, and um, there was a real reciprocity happening within those exchanges. It was really it was so fun to have um, these musicians come in and show the classes some of their uh, art and what they do, and then for the classes to in turn. Uh, show what we've been working on and then also to work together. Um, so why was it really important 
to you to be involved with this project? Oh, well, I I think um, because I, I really believe that, that uh, you know, we're all a community together. And some of us just might need a little bit of extra um, facilitation or help or encouragement to to express ourselves the way we want to. And uh, I know that from, from teaching, all different kinds of students at the Robin Hood Center and also privately, um, I learn every day that I teach, I learn something new because I'm always problem solving and always trying to think, you know, how can, it, is it, it's my job to help this person be able to express themselves the way they want to. So I'm always learning different strategies and um, I am a musician myself and so I have a lot of a lot of the people that were involved in the project were my friends and uh, I knew that it would just be so rewarding for them because and I wanted I wanted my students to be able to know them and to see you know look here are my friends and here's all the amazing musical things they can do and then I wanted my friends to also meet the clients I work with and show them how amazing they are and what you know I wanted them to see my choir and how how hard they work and how professional they are and how committed they are and uh, and to bring these groups together is really rewarding and everybody had so much fun and really learned from each other and we wrote some amazing songs we're so proud of the album um, and that's another thing that is really rewarding is to be able to um, have facilitated this album making so people you know their name is in the album so they can say to their family and friends I worked for two years on this choir song and then we recorded it and here I am on this album Do you have a favorite song from the album? Oh, that is so hard because I, 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 I think it changes every week <laughs> because I'm just we've just been so immersed in it. I really love uh, a little bird. It's the first song on the album. It's so catchy. Um, but I also love God's love is not human beings' love, which is Alula Debar's song that he wrote because it's also gorgeous. Um, and. Uh, of course, I love the choir songs because it's my choir, and I'm so proud of them. Those are really special too. So I don't know. I don't think I have a favorite. I think they're all my favorite. <laughs> I know that's not a good answer, but that's. <laughs> I like that answer. Uh, so, does music empower you? Definitely, really, yeah. How does it do that? Do you think? Um. It's, it's a way that I am able to express myself and it's a way that I'm able to uh, work through things and uh, I, I can use it politically if I want to. I mean, depending on which band I'm in, we have, you know, um, I've written songs that are sort of in response to different things or just working out ideas or feelings or, um, yeah, and I have a voice when I'm, when I'm on stage and I'm playing and I'm, I'm uh, communicating my heart and my mind. That's, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty amazing. And, I, and there's a freedom in that. I can say and do whatever. And that's empowering to me, um, really. If 
finally. Um, so do you think this album will be empowering and also help address the stigma uh, against people with disabilities? Definitely. Yeah, I think so. It's, um, there are so, there's so many uh, people in the world who are so talented and just need to be given a chance to show what they can do and and uh, maybe just that little bit of facilitation or somebody helping modify something so that they're able to express themselves. Um, during the process, we so many times we'd be like, oh, I had no idea that person could do this, but actually they're the most amazing drummer or they're so good at keyboards or they have amazing... Um, they have a beautiful voice or, you know, when you give people a chance to show what they can do, it's amazing what happens. And and uh, everybody is so proud. I mean, everybody is looking in the CD to see where their name is. And everyone's um, really proud of, of that they wrote these songs. And I keep saying to my classes, you guys, you wrote these songs. These songs are your songs and we're going to perform them and you're going to be able to share them with your family on the CD that will exist forever. So, I think uh, I think there's a, I think there's a lot of empowerment in that, and that it's just music. It's all of us working together. And James Stewart, um, I want to read a little uh, a little quotation from him because I think it really sums everything up quite nicely. He says uh, because uh, because really the project is not like us and them. It's like, it's us together. It's people. Uh, James says, music should be completely inclusive. The cliche is that it's a universal language, but it's absolutely true. When we're creating music together, we're all peers and we're all on the same playing field. And I think that's really true. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much. It was a great honor to be on this program because I love it. If you want to pick up the album, you can buy the album on iTunes. Um, I believe it's also available through Bandcamp. And it's called All In Music Volume 1. A bird sitting on a tree is never afraid of the branch breaking because her trust is not on the branch, but on its own wings. Always believe in yourself. Hey.
Welcome back once again. This is Adam and Eve, your feminist radio show on CJSR. We just heard a song from the All In Music Project, which is a collaboration between professional musicians in the Edmonton area, the Robin Hood Association in Sherwood Park, and a group of emerging musicians. The song we heard was God's Love Is Not Human Beings Love, featuring Alula Debar and Nick Kozib, Curtis Ross, and Amy Van Keeken. And before that, we heard an interview with Amy Van Keeken, who is one of the lead facilitators on this project. And that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to catch up with Adam and Eve on social media, please look us up on Twitter and Facebook at Adam and Eve. Or you can visit CJSR SoundCloud page to find some of our past episodes. Or you can look us up on iTunes. This has been Marco. I've been your host for this half hour feminist radio. So long for now. <laughs> <laughs>